Good morning. As we talked about last week, we set out um, one of the vision statements for this year is about discerning scripture. And so we're going to continue sort of what we did last week and just keep expanding on that. Before we do so, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we gathered together. Um, Thank you so much for that opportunity. I pray that as you've already been moving in the surface, that you continue to move, um, that you would speak through me what you, um, you want us to hear, that you would give us ears to hear those things. In your name, amen. So as we talked about last week, um, when you get to how to read scripture, you get statements like, let scripture interpret scripture, um, or for instance, scripture is a commentary unto itself. Those sound great, but what that means and how to really put that to work can often feel very complicated. What are we supposed to do with that? What does that really mean? So last week, again, we looked at the idea of the big word, intertextuality. And I, I, I had somebody come up to me afterwards and sort of say, like, why, why do we have to use such big words? Couldn't you just tell us the short one, which is, where have we heard this, these words, phrases, or the story before? That's really what we're driving at. Um, the reason I even bring the word to you is because if you're stuck on a scripture, you can... Go to Google and you can Google, ah, I'm reading about, you know, Exodus 4 and I want to know something about it. But if you put in intertextuality with it, you'll instantly get away from all the just goofballs who are on the internet making comments about things and you instantly start to get to people who really actually have read scripture and spent a lot of time with it. So that would be why it's useful to know the word. So again, what we're, we're looking at is this idea of where have we heard these words, phrases, or this story before? A way to think about that is to sort of think about it as the idea of if you listen to a song, you hear a tune. Now, if I were to take that tune and play it in a different instrument, you'd still recognize it. So, Dad, would you? So you can see, we've changed through a lot of different instruments, yet we can hear the same tune over and over and over again. And so in the same way, as we read scripture, the idea is is that we start to recognize a tune. We're not saying the tune is identical. We're saying the tune is similar. And as such, it helps us to understand and be able to interpret scripture better. That's what we're doing. That's our goal as we set this out. So last week, we also talked about the idea of fundamental stories. What would you list as some of the fundamental stories to scripture? The first one I put out for you was the idea of a father gets a bride for his son. It's what happens on page two and what happens on the second to last page of the Bible. And as we started to see, as we listened to some of the other stories, as we went through this last week, we heard fathers or those who have become surrogate fathers getting brides for their sons. The second story and the one we've been focusing on is the idea of two siblings. One stays and one goes away. And if we were to do that, we had made a list last week. Quiz. What are some of those stories? Wow. Thank you, Will. Jacob and Esau. Joseph and Judah. Thank you. Okay, go ahead. Yes, David and Jonathan. 
So we had in there Ishmael and Isaac, Rebekah and Laban, Aaron and Moses, Abimelech and Jotham, and finally Absalom and Amnon. And that's not an exhaustive list. This is just a list that we'll sort of start with. So as we're looking at this, the idea is, is how do these stories, one, they keep showing up. Two, how do we use those stories to be able to contrast against each other, to be able to learn more and gain more insights? Review from last week. We learned a couple things, and so we're just going to sort of build from there. One is that favor showed to one is not at the cost or exclusion of others. And that's really important is to recognize that just because there seems to be favor showed to one doesn't mean that therefore that somehow separates us from others also receiving something. And blessing is to be shared outward. It's not something to be grasped for ourselves. So as we recognize that we're to be blessings, we recognize where that orientation of that blessing is. It's not for us to grab onto. It's something that is, flows outwards from us. So today I want to I focus on a specific theme, um, return and exile. And so when we get to that, what I want to look at is, is in the story of Absalom and Amnon. Now Absalom does some pretty terrible things. I'm sorry, Amnon does some terrible things to Absalom's sister. No one seems to deal with the problem, so Absalom takes it upon himself to solve the problem by killing Amnon. And now he's in exile. David's done nothing at this point to really seem to have resolved the issue. Joab, the, king, uh, the king's general, if you will, comes and sends a, a woman to pose as if her two children are having conflict and asking David for advice. And so when she does, she makes a variety of statements that I think are really interesting, but I specifically want to focus in on this one here, 2 Samuel 14, 14 to 15. And she says something that I think is just really interesting from the standpoint of how does she come to this conclusion? We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. She makes a statement. And sometimes we can ask the question, are they just crazy because there are times when, in Scripture where people say things and they're just wrong. And there are other times where we need to pause and say, how did she come to that conclusion? I think this is really an interesting, interesting one. Here we are in the story of two siblings. One stays, one goes away. And here we are. She's even telling an allegory, if you will, about this. And she makes a statement right in the middle of it. And David doesn't go, I disagree with you on that. He, from that, actually responds and actually acts because of what she comes and says to him. But it raises the question, how does she come to that conclusion? If we were to take that story, two siblings, one stays and one goes away, another way to think of that is, is that one of the siblings goes into exile. And we see that in the story of Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael. There is an exile that happens because of some action of one of the brothers. We see that with Jacob and Esau, Joseph and Judah, Moses and Aaron. And we see this constant, this theme of exile. And so the question is, is what she's just say, stated in the story of Absalom and Amnon is, is that the only person who brings us back from exile is God. You can try to do it on your own, but it doesn't work. 
God's the one who does it. That's her claim. So the question is, is that really right? I'm going to give you a spoiler, so if you want to plug your ears, if you don't want, this, want the ending, I'm just going to give you the ending. Christ went into exile for us. He was betrayed so that he could bring us back. He reconciles us to him so that we can be reconciled to others. So that's where we're headed. But first, we're going to spend a bunch of time in the Old Testament and building this, this idea out of what she claims. She's only part of the way through the Old Testament, and she's already making this claim. How does she come to that conclusion? To practice before we move on. We're going to practice hearing the tune. Uh, I'm going to let the kids weigh in on this first. I'm going to describe to you a tune, if you will. Kids get first bid at, or guess at who, who the story is about. In some ways, God has placed a special purpose on their life. There's conflict with other members of the family, which caused them to be sent away from their home. A goat and a coat are used to deceive the father. There is a break to the story where their brother marries a woman. Any of the kids want to jump in and guess? No? Joseph? Okay. Jacob and Esau. Okay, yes. So you're both right. So let's, let's go back through it. In some way, God has placed a special purpose on their life. So in the same way we hear God say, look, um, Jacob is going to rule over his brother in some way. In the case of Joseph, Joseph has dreams that somehow promise exactly the same type of thing, rulership over his brothers. There's conflict in the family. In this case, in Jacob's story, who causes the conflict? But Jacob. In the story of Joseph and his brothers, it's his brothers who actually cause the conflict. But in both cases, the outcome's the same. A goat and a coat are used to deceive. The outcome is that someone goes into exile from what happens. A pause to the story where Esau gets married as Jacob goes away. A pause to the story where Judah gets married as he goes away, as Joseph goes away. In both cases, so we see, start to see these parallels. They both end up working for a man. One works for Laban. The other one works for Potiphar. There's trouble overworking for the man because of a woman. Jacob wants a girl, and he gets the wrong one. Darn it. Joseph has a woman who wants him, and problems happen. So in both cases, we, you know, we start to, you know, we're hearing the rhythm of how these stories are not the same. It's like we're playing a different instrument, but this tune starts to sound very similar. Both bring great prosperity to the man while they're working for them. Now, there's a pause in the Joseph story where he ends up basically working for a new man. And at that point, then, you pick up the story and we hear again the same type of thing, which is they both get a new father. Both of them are given wives from the people. There's a test of the brothers. Jacob faces the test in that strange wrestling in the night. And Joseph actually is the one who puts his brothers through the test. Are you different than you were the last time? When I give you the opportunity to throw one favored brother under the bus, will you take it or will you rise above the last choice? Now, they both meet with their brothers they're reconciled to them, and both, in both cases, again, the brothers kiss and weep. So we hear this tune playing over again. So now I'm going to try it a little different. 
Exodus 2. We're reading the story of Moses. Specifically, verses 11 to 22. Now, instead of summarizing the story, I'm just going to read you Moses' story. What I want you to listen to is, is what tune is playing in the background of the story. It's a familiar story, but let's see what we can do. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian hearing a Hebrew, beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, the two Egyptians were struggling together, and he, uh, the two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came to their father, Raoul, he said, How is it that you have come home so so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses contented to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Story? Notes back in the background? Any thoughts? So familiar it's hard to hear it? Okay. If I start to summarize the story for you, how about we do it something like this? He does something that causes him to flee his home. Someone is seeking to kill him. He ends up at a well. Guesses yet? Waters the flocks of the daughters of the man. He lives with the man. He marries one of the daughters. Do you hear it? We're hearing Jacob's story right in the background of the Moses story. Now, he marries one of the daughters, which again raises the question, is he now a surrogate father? He has a child with a woman, same thing. He heads back home. Now, he has a confrontation with God about their identity. In the story of Jacob, we recognize the story, right? He wrestles in the dark. You know that weird story where Moses is headed home, and all of a sudden, there's somebody trying to kill him, and he's got somebody get circumcised? Put those stories next to each other, and all of a sudden you start to get a little bit more thought about what is going on in the story. Moses is supposed to be going into Egypt to deal with the Egyptians. Is his son an Egyptian, or is he a Hebrew? If he's not circumcised, his identity is the wrong identity. And so in the same way, it's a test about identity that faces right in the middle of those. And notice how as we hear the tune, we can start to hear that tune come up a little bit clearer. How are these identical stories, but not identical stories? Now, in both cases, the action from the confrontation, what just happened, Jacob walks away with a limp. Somebody walks away with missing extra parts of their body. 
Sorry. God leaves a confrontation. So both end up with a lasting thing. Yeah. Uh, brothers end up meeting and kissing at the very end of the story. So in both cases, they're reconciled. So we hear in the story of Moses, the tune playing in the background, if you will, the tune of Jacob. Okay, so we want to step back for a second, and we want to ask the question again, which is what we're listening for is, is this tune, but we're listening for specifically this claim that it is God who initiates the return from exile. If we go to Genesis 30, 25 to 27, Jacob is in exile. And as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I might go to my home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served that I might go for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. So here Jacob is wanting to go home. He wants to return. And Laban prevents him from it. It also creates some really interesting tension because if you think, of, read the, if we read that very first portion, it says, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away. So something about the very birth of Joseph seems to be initiating the actual movement, which creates a question for us long before we actually get to 37, which is, what's Jacob's relationship with Joseph? Before we've even gotten to 37, we're already wondering, is there something about the relationship between Jacob and Joseph, and is that going to create something? But here it is. He wants to return home, and he can't. Now, we get to Genesis 31. Now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from that was what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So chapter before, Jacob's trying to return home on his own. And he can't. Chapter later, God steps into the story and says, okay, it's time. Let's head home. It is time for you to go. And so then the story moves forward. It is God who actually brings the action in the story. Jacob wants to return home, but it isn't time. When God is ready, he brings about the action to return from exile. Now, as we come forward in the story, there's both God's action that brings about the return from exile. And Jacob still does something as he's returning from exile to reconcile the situation with his brother. Jacob sends wealth to Esau. And again, we're just sort of hearing this, these things in the same way at the last week we heard, which was all of these things that Jacob did that caused damage to the relationship earlier in the story. Now Jacob's going to invert and undo. He's going to deal with those things because he starts to recognize that it's not the right way to, get, to solve the problem. So, Jacob was obsessed with wealth. That's what he wants. He wants to have that blessing. He wants to get all of those things. So finally here he's turning around and he's saying, here, I'm giving them back to you. Not only that, but he's been promised that he will be Lord over his brothers. And here he's, he turns around and he says, look, I want you to know I am your servant, Esau. You are my Lord because it's not that 
That's the priority. Restoration is more of a priority here. In the middle of that story, we get the break. And the question is, okay, Jacob, are you really ready to deal with this? What's your name? Are you still posing as Esau? Or are you finally ready to pose as who you actually are, Jacob? And he is. And so he gets a new name. They're reunited. And in the same way that there was betrayal around kissing, where Jacob, or Isaac kisses Jacob as he's posing as he's posing as Esau. Now, the two brothers are reunited and Esau kisses Jacob because they are restored. And in the story before, Esau wept by himself. And in this story, now we see both brothers weeping together because they've been restored. And Jacob again saying, please accept my blessing because it's not about me clinging onto it and grasping it and stealing it at whatever it costs What's more the priority is the restoration of the relationship. And so that's where we sort of get to this story. So we get to this point where Jacob has come home, the relationship is restored, and God is the one who brought this about. Without him, it wouldn't be possible. Now, we get a break again in these stories where we, we hear about how Esau gets his inheritance, he moves away, and we get his descendants Great, Jacob is settled in the land. Things are looking great. And then the story of Joseph and Judah. And there is deception again with goats and coats of a father. And a son goes into exile again. But this time it's different. Because where one brother was exiled... There is now the whole family who ends up in exile. There, none of them are in the promised land. They're all outside of it. And while we see that Judah before was again happy to throw his brother under the bus to solve the problem, here in this story, finally at the end, they are able to reconcile. But he doesn't, he, what he does is simply mature. He doesn't seem to set the relationship right. He just makes a better decision with the, the last time. See the difference between those two. In Jacob's story, Jacob really actually deals with the decisions that he made and tries to undo them. Judah just doesn't make the same choice a second time. But he's not really trying to do anything to reconcile the relationship. Now, if you were to ask me, what does it mean to reconcile a relationship when you cause someone to be enslaved? We're going to have to keep reading. But the answer is, is that here, I mean, we, Joseph, Judah hasn't actually dealt with the problem. So that's where the Genesis ends with a very large tension. There is the family that has been promised a land, and yet none of them live in it. They're all outside of it. What are we going to do? Is this the end of the story? Is this the end of the story with Joseph? Or will there be a point when someone when God steps in again and brings an end to the exile. And so we recognize that Moses comes in in the middle of the story. He experiences a miniature version 
of what everyone else is about to do. Moses goes into exile and God brings him back. It is God who again initiates return from exile. Moses seems sort of content. At the end of that portion we read, it sort of says Moses is content where he is. And God comes into the story and says, ah, no, you're not. Return from exile so that I can bring all of my family, all of my children out of exile. And so Moses comes into that story and that's where he is. But the Joseph story is still not done. We're still in exile. Joseph's no longer alive. And yet we still have the problem of the exile and what the cause of that is. The brothers did something that caused everyone to be in exile. How are we going to resolve that issue? Who is going to bring that about? So if we think for a second, and what I, again, what we've been doing is, is hearing large tunes, the story of how Jacob and Judah, Moses, those stories can run in parallel to each other. But we can pause, and in just a a chunk of a story, hear how two stories sound very similar. And we did that last week where we heard Judah's story replays the story of of Joseph and how he makes a better decision the next time through. So if we do that, then what we get to is Laban and Pharaoh. There is a contrast that is created in these stories between Laban and Pharaoh. That Laban is basically a miniature Pharaoh. Laban has, in some ways, enslaved Joseph, uh, Jacob. He has brought him in, but he, he try, he's trying to leave and he can't. By the end of the story, now Jacob has wealth and ends up leaving. He ends up going out. And if we hear that, then what we hear then next is Genesis 31, 22 to 23. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, He took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched in the hill country of Gilead. So we heard just just that. Now if I, I read to you what happens in Exodus. Exodus 14, five to nine. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled... Sounds familiar. The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done? We have let Israel go from, our serv- uh, from serving us. So he made ready his chariots and took it with them and took 600 chariots, chosen chariots, and all the chariots of Israel with officers over all of them. So we hear, one, an announcement that someone has fled. Two, that all of a sudden that person is going to gather a bunch of people and he's going to pursue them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them. So we get to hear these four same statements. They find about being fled. They gather people. They pursue, and they overtake. Those four, exactly in the same order. We start to hear that maybe there's some parallels running in that story. Is it possible that we should be hearing that there is an, a contrast between those two. You guys hearing, hearing this? So if there is a exodus that God has brought Jacob into, and now we've, we're seeing another exodus, Jacob takes responsibility for his actions. 
How will the people take responsibility for the actions that brought them into exile? And so what I want to suggest to you is that if we pause for a second there and look at this story, Passover, I would suggest to you, is a, an inversion of the betrayal. It is what happens to Joseph. God forces the people to face in the very actions of what they do in Passover night. And what I want to do is build that out for you. And what, we're, what, I, what I'm claiming or what I'm suggesting is, is that God is going to force them to redeem that story. And the reason you want to redeem a story like that is because if you're going to build a people and they're constantly happy to just throw each other under the bus, the people won't last very long. You need to instill in them the understanding that their brothers and sisters matter to each other. No relevance to anything we're talk- we, we as a church might have to think about. Exodus 11. If we're reading through the story, we get to this point. Say you watch one of the movies of the Exodus, and God says, oh, hey, by the way, I'm going to bring this last plague. Passover's going to happen, and I'm going to bring you out. Great. That's, what, that's, that's how the movies sort of play out. If you're reading through the story, you get to chapter 12, and all of a sudden there's this long pause with all of these details about how you're supposed to carry out the Passover supper. And then not bad enough that God tells it to us. Then there's a pause, and then Moses comes back and tells us again basically what to do. We can come to, that conclu- to the conclusion a couple of different things. One is, is somebody's a really bad storyteller and doesn't know how to keep the storyline going. <laughs> or this is a very important detail and essential to the story. If we do that, We might notice, for instance, that the phrase dip in blood, that they're told to dip the hyssop in blood and mark the doorway. The only time we've seen that phrase dip in blood up to this point in the story is when the brothers dip Joseph's coat in blood. Outside of those two stories, we get them a couple other places. One, Leviticus, yay! And Revelation, but the only places that we get dip in blood are in that, these stories, okay? Um, if we're trying to see this as an inversion, what the brothers did as an act in secret, the corporate Israel is being forced to put out in front of the whole world to make the statement that this is who we are. We're marking this. So we are not doing something in secret. We're not just hiding in our houses, eating a lamb. We're doing something that is a statement that everyone will know who this is. We're making a decision that is the opposite, if you will, the inversion of what the brothers try to do. Reading those details, I want, I want to, we're just going to listen to some, some of these weird things that I think just sort of strike me as we're reading. If we read Exodus 12, where this Passover things portion is, I want you to tell me what type of lamb, or, um, wow, what type of animal? Well done. 
I gave my answer away. What type of animal are they going to use? Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the nearest of persons, according to what each can eat. And so you shall count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. We pause there. It's a lamb. Lamb, 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 lamb. And what does lamb mean? If we look it up, yes, it does mean what we think it means. It means lamb. (laughs) It doesn't mean something else. So if we stop there, we'd say, okay, we know what the Passover is about. It's about a lamb. But then it goes on. I have flipped my pages. Thanks. There we go. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep. Okay. That still makes sense. Or from the goats. What? Lamb, 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 lamb. Sheep, yeah. Or goats. Is it possible... that goats are being allowed to pose as something else one last time. Okay, I just want to put that out there. Just, we're, we're just framing things, okay? We're, gonna, we're attending, attentive to the details of the story and paying attention to how these fit in the overall story. I'm going to read to you from the King James because all modern translations seem to drop something out that I think is weird. Then Moses called out of all the elders of Israel and said to them, draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. He says, draw out and take. All of our modern translations just say take. Why? Because if I were to tell you take and I didn't tell you draw out, would you be confused? Would you not know what to do? Darn it. If only you told me to draw out, then I would know. So all of our translations drop it but it's there in the Hebrew. Why? If we were to happen to look and figure out where is draw out also used, one other story. When Joseph is pulled out of the pit, he's drawn out of the pit. If we were to pay attention to the wording and look in the Hebrew for what the Israelites are told to dress as they're ready to flee, and we were to look at those words, guess where they happen to show up in the story? right? In the betrayal story. All another place. We keep hearing all of these things that are saying like, you need to hear the Passover as the undoing, the undoing of what happens in the story of Joseph. The people are taking responsibility. A, a people who are constantly just willing to, when they see someone blessed, get rid of that person at the cost of the rest, will not survive. And so they have to learn from the stories that have come before, and they must face it. If I were to summarize it this way, if you don't want to lose your firstborn, 
then you will need to play out the stories that have come before and redeem them. Bring your brother back. We redeem brothers, not send them away to solve the problems. Do you see how God is forcing them to face the very thing that brought them into exile? And if you can't face that, if you can't deal with it, then you aren't ready to be able to function as Israel that I call you to be. To the nations, you have to be a blessing. If you cannot mature beyond what the brothers have been doing through the story, then we're going to have problems. So we... We've been looking at this. Last week we looked at the uh, prodigal son story. Again, just want to sort of re... We're going to go to the New Testament now. The prodigal son, son who wants wealth at the expense of relationships with the family, echoes Jacob. Sorry, Dad, I skipped a couple slides ahead. The son who is reunited with his family because of a famine echoes Joseph. And so when the son comes home in the story, the son is reunited with his father and he kisses him, which isn't a surprise to us at this point. Reuniting, when relationships are restored, there is a reuniting that involves the kiss of reuniting. Like that's just part of the stories. And the father gives him his best robe. And again, we start to hear these stories that Jesus is drawing on to hear the echoes, to hear how they're inverted and how he's calling us to hear who the true father is and the challenge that that is. But if we stop there, I think the argument that the two brothers is fundamental to the story comes up short. So we'll keep going. When we get to the story of Jesus, we moved from the Hebrew version of scripture to the Greek version. And what happens often is, is we lose that sometimes the, word, the names of people get changed. For instance, Mary would be Miriam. And so when she sings the song, when she hears about the birth of Jesus, when we sit, hear her singing that song, we should be reminded of the last Miriam who was singing a song about Exodus. So in the same way, if, for instance, we were to recognize that Judas, the closest Hebrew word would be Judah, and he sells someone for silver, we might stop and go, huh, are we supposed to be hearing betrayal? And then it gets worse. The very thing that is used to reunite brothers is the very thing that Jesus uses, Judah uses to betray him. And in all the Gospels, Jesus is stripped of a robe. That very same phrase used in only two other stories. And so here, in the very moment of Passover, when the people of Israel are supposed to be being reminded of what brought them to exile in the first place, they're doing the exact opposite. They have moved to the point of just being happy to replay the stories 
and betray people if only to get them out of the way. But what's different about the story is Jesus is not caught off guard. Unlike all the other brothers who are shocked by the betrayals, Jesus sees it coming. He allows it, he faces it, and he says, it's okay. You, this is, bring in this, do this thing. Go and do it. Because he takes on himself the very betrayal, which we recognize as the Passover lamb is what he does. He takes the very betrayal on so that he can bring us back from exile. He takes that judgment on himself. He joins us to himself and brings us back from exile. The return from exile has already been accomplished by Christ on the cross. And I think sometimes it's easy to know that, and yet when our actions cause damage, we would expect that exile might be part of that. We might have to go away. But if we lean on who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, then we recognize that exile is no longer an expected part of the outcome because he has already done it for us. He has brought us through that. He sets right what we couldn't set right. We are redeemed back to sons and daughters of the true father. We're the ones who have been made right. And so we stand on the other side of the story, that bleak story of brothers and sisters constantly betraying each other. But it doesn't have to be that way because Christ is the one who stood in that gap for us so that we can be redeemed, so that we can be reconciled to each other. Only God can bring us back from exile and only God is the one who did bring us back from exile. And so now sibling relationships, and we remember when we looked at sibling relationships last time, sibling relationships are not only genetic relationships. Jonathan and David are not siblings. And we can look at some other ones in a similar type of, of light. We are all now brothers and sisters. And so only because of what Christ has done can we too also be reconciled and redeemed and brought out of exile. Questions and comments? So, Lord, we thank you that it is your actions and only yours who can bring us from exile. No matter much, how much we want to on our own, it cannot happen. You took that spot for us. You took that place for us. You were betrayed in the same way that we saw so many others betrayed. And yet, through that, you are finally able to reconcile us to you so that we can be reconciled to each other. And we thank you so much for that, Lord, for your actions in this world, in our lives, to make us true sons and daughters. In your name, amen.